Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. It is the 5th of the 8th. With the bank holiday, you're hearing from us a little bit closer to each other than normal. So I hope that you have missed the sound of our voice and the sound of traffic going outside Michael's window as much as you normally do. Michael, how are you? Oh, jeez, thanks for the traffic thing. I just think it's important for people to know that the traffic noise that pops up on the podcast is not me. I am in an appropriate recording place. How do we know that? How do I know if that's true? For all I know, you could be standing in the middle of the main street in Bray recording this right now, trying to decide whether or not you'll go to McDonald's afterwards for a coffee. Well, it would be a bit redundant for a boat to stand in the middle of a main street. I'm not standing anywhere near any main streets. I'm looking out a window, admittedly, and the window is telling me that it's grey and dull, and I keep being promised weather. And the whole of the continental Europe is dying of weather. 35 and 40 degrees, 42 degrees Celsius. Where's my weather? I want some weather before it's all over. I assume with that, uh, with your focus on finding weather, that you've been paying very close attention to Irish news the last couple of days, Michael? My life is Irish news, Gary. I never do anything except play. Well, no, it depends if you mean by Irish news, news in Minneapolis. Well, then, yes. Irish news, hmm. That is, yeah, I mean, there was some news out of Minneapolis, but uh, didn't see anything in the other Irish news. Grip covered it. But the Irish Times, the Irish Independent, uh, the Irish Examiner, and the Journal don't seem to have. Well, it's my suspicion that they have done, but just put it in a place where we haven't made been able to find it yet, because they have covered every other detail pretty well. The Independent certainly did. Every other detail of the... Uh, George Floyd case has been forensic is the wrong word um, puriently salaciously uh, outlined in detail so I don't know it's, it seems odd that the single biggest break in the case which is the publication the leaked publication through the Daily Mail of the officer's body cam of the arrest and the, the whole incident shouldn't have passed them by this is the biggest story in the world right now i mean it shouldn't be big story right now should be the fact that china and india are trying to see if they can blow each other get to a point where they might actually go to war russia's getting involved by the way nobody's interested in that kind of stuff but has been re-establishing friendly ties with india and launching really new cool submarines in the far east but no the biggest story in the world is the floyd story and this is the biggest break in the floyd story and yet lo and behold it is not there so for the listener who isn't aware of this the george floyd case in which a black man called george floyd died after an interaction with police in minneapolis famously one of the officers ended up with his knee across george floyd's neck for about eight and a half or nine minutes, depending on what source you're looking at. That started the Black Lives Matter protests. He had a incredible public funeral in the age of COVID. He was, and he's become a symbol of many things in the US. That has been reported on by Irish media to an incredible degree, to an extent that the Journal, the Irish Times and the Irish Examiner have all reported things as small as the fact that one of the officers charged in the George Floyd case 
is facing um, tax evasion. Oh. Which, at, at that point, we've, we'll report anything. But what they haven't reported is that the Daily Mail in England managed to get a hold of about 18 minutes of leaked body cam footage from the police officers who arrested George Floyd. And that actually starts before they run into George Floyd, when they're talking to the people who called them there, and they're talking to other people in the car about George Floyd. Because George Floyd is in a car when the police... um, He's getting ready to drive away when the police uh, confront him. And they've somehow missed this, Michael. Now, maybe they're worried about things like um, collapsing the child. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. 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 No, I don't. I, I don't think they're worried about collapsing the trail. And the interesting thing about the body cam footage is that the defence have spent weeks trying to get the judge presiding over the case to allow this, to allow them to release this footage, saying it gives uh, necessary context to the death of George Floyd and would massively change the narrative around his yes. death. And that judge had, I believe, the phrase was he had taken that into consideration. But he had banned all distribution of the footage. And what he instead had allowed is people to go into the courthouse in which the trial will be held and by appointment view the footage. Now, just for clarity, anybody and everybody. It's public, it, in under Minneapolis law, it is considered to be public yeah. property. So my understanding is that the step they took of not releasing it but allowing people to view it was unusual. Um perhaps in the extreme. And having seen the footage, I'm not terribly surprised they didn't want to release it. For why? It doesn't leave a lot of the narrative about George Floyd, um, what we've been hearing from newspapers about systemic racism and things of that nature. It doesn't leave a lot of that looking sustainable, I would say. The police are... Now, there's enough in the, the video that you do what CNN did, which is edit it together in such a way that any time the police officers do anything reasonable, it's gone. And you can still make it look pretty bad. But um, at no point do they appear to do anything racially motivated. They actually seem quite willing to try and help him. They also do draw a gun on him um, near the opening of one of the videos, which I think is many people's sticking point. They don't, they're not antagonistic towards him for the most part. And he is very obviously high. I mean, very, very high. Very, very high. Yeah. You see, you say I, that it, dis, it dismantles the narrative. And I think that that is true. I'm sure it's also true that depend, if you got somebody who was very deep deep in the others in the narrative from the perspective of say of BLM and the institutional racism and the wickedness of the of the cops and this cop in particular it's amazing how people will find different narratives in the same thing you know that what I don't understand is allowing the fact that this does actually put a context on what's happened is that there has been this reluctance on behalf of this shall we say the state side of things, like the judge, the trial process, the, the, to create this context, something very dangerous has happened in this from the moment it kicked off. The moment, the first 24 hours when we were talking about this, 
the thing that struck me was that nobody asked the question do we have any reason to believe not that this officer acted with brutality or with a lack of care or whatever that that was a different way but rather that he he behaved in this way to this man because this man was was black that there was a race that was baked just straight in baked into this thing now because of public pressure Gary my understanding if I, or my memory is that when and this happened within a couple of days of this incident the officers were arrested and charged. I mean, this was not something that happened as a result of six months of protests and shouting and demanding, but rather the Minneapolis DA, within a couple of days, had this man charged with manslaughter. But then the charge was upped to second-degree murder. Now, I was I, 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 talking about this briefly to Glenn Lowry, Professor Glenn Lowry, on the interview, and I anybody's interested I'd, I'd rec have go listen have a listen to that i've talked to a couple of lawyers about this in the states and they are very skeptical i mean this was before this came out gary they were very skeptical about the capacity to make successfully make a secondary murder case stick but all across the united states in all of the media outlets and not just cultural institutions but professor lowry's own brown university published a statement sh talking about the violence against police of police and institutional systemic racism and the death of Floyd and all this it's all working on this bland assumption of the obviousness of the guilt what happens what happens if they find the guy not guilty now I mean it's going to be mm. an abs potentially so the the murder charge after seeing between there's a couple of things in the video i also read the um, toxicology report from the original autopsy um george floyd at the time he died was basically a walking pharmacy so he also had a history of uh, heart problems he had serious heart disease he was he, he was di diabetic he had, he had three times a lethal dosage of fentanyl in his system when he died. He had methamphetamines, he had cannabis. Uh, now, having said that, the lethal dosage of fentanyl for a man his size, particularly if he was a regular user, uh, would be, uh, he wouldn't be anywhere near that. But just on the raw maths, he has got a lot of the drug in his system. Alcohol as well? I actually can't remember if he had alcohol. My memory, in my, I, my memory may be wrong, but that there was some alcohol in there also. But there's definitely some cannabis yeah. in there. Um, Methamphetamine, certainly. So, having watched the video and have, having read the autopsy and having gone through the Minneapolis police, um, some of the material they released on what they the, the handbook and what is an appropriate reaction to certain things, there's absolutely zero chance that murder charges. No, just, it's just on the subject of the autopsy. In the preliminary results of this, I can you confirm or deny afterwards? I, you saw it. They said that he did not die of suffocation, and that there was no that his uh, wasn't they hadn't broken or damaged, fractured 
the uh, vertebrae in the neck, but rather he had died of complications as a result of chronic heart disease associated with blah, blah. But rather, most, most particular point, he had not, counter to everybody's perception, died of suffocation. Was that the fact? Was that the conclusion in the, the full autopsy? So the there were two autopsies taken. Um, the first one was done by the county, the county uh, medical examiner, who is totally independent of the police and is legally beholden to release all material they discover in their case. The second autopsy was done by the yeah. family, and they brought in a particular uh, person to do it. In that case, there's no legal requirement for them to give all information. They can give any mix of it that they feel is appropriate. Um, appropriate. Also, I don't know if you've ever seen an autopsy done, Michael, but they're not gentle. No, procedures. pretty. Yeah. Oftentimes, after the first autopsy, there will be so little. Because you'll go in, you'll cut things open, you might break bones. You might, in fact, in cases where, let's say, someone is, there may be an issue involving suffocation. Someone may remove that entire section. Um, so oftentimes the second autopsy is just not um, is not viable. So I think in the second autopsy, they went off the video that was available to a large extent. But that was the the basic finding of the of the initial report was that um, was that there was no damage to the neck or I believe what was the phrase laryngeal system laryngeal probably mm. um and that he had in fact died uh, due to an issue they said it was complicated by the presence of the police it was ruled a homicide um but it did not say that it was um it was actually caused by the police officers uh, effectively his um his heart stopped beating <clears throat> which often happens when people die. Yeah, I think the it was it was classed as cardiopulmonary arrest, and then it did also bring in that he had naturally had heart disease. There was drugs, um, but whether or not it was caused by the actual the the restraint on his neck or by the excited state he was in is a different thing, and it doesn't say that. But then that would be for the court to decide. That would be as a matter of. It, They'll have to decide as a matter of fact. But just on that, just simply on that fact alone, the fact that the autopsy cannot decide on what precisely was the cause of death, surely in a system which is based on the principle of uh, certainty, uh, you know, that there is reasonable doubt, that's a reasonable doubt the size of a, a barn door, leaving aside every other bit of potential reasonable doubt. I just think that the, 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 leaving aside the ideological issues, philosophical bents of the various media outlets that have been reporting this and all the groups that have been using it, instrumentalizing it for their own particular political or, or, or business needs, there's an incredible lack of seriousness with these people, an incredible lack of probity, just basic civic probity. They've built up an assumption, a broad-based assumption across the population regarding this. Now, who knows we, we, what kind of jury will will be impaneled? Will they? I, mean, I would. Re the last thing you need 
is to have a 12-man white jury find these cops not guilty then i mean we could see this whole thing just well, he, also, well, he also had covid yeah just for the year he had covid 19 which obviously meant that he was also sort of re- there's the potential for respiratory problems we're back in was it 1992 do you remember those police officers in los angeles that beast oh, up, rodney, king, rodney king and then we're found and we're found not guilty and but that went well. I think that the general exception here is that uh, if these people get off, that uh, American cities are going to burn. I don't know, which, which seems like pessimism, Michael. <laughs> it, well, I wouldn't say it's happy, it's, it's happy, positive thinking, but I think it's pretty accurate. I, on the basis of what we've seen so far, that these, uh, these officers, or this particular officer anyway, being found not guilty, would be the final demonstrative proof that the American system is systemically institutionally racist and that white power and white supremacy uses the structures to defend its own. The big problem they have now is that not only will these people get off on the murder charge, but looking at the material available, that is the correct decision. Yeah. Uh, On the manslaughter charge... I mean, they might, if they get unlucky with a jury, they might get them. And to be fair, if they get unlucky with a jury, they might get them on the murder charge. But what will happen is there will be an inevitable appeal. And given what is available, even if they get convicted, the appeal will go through. It would be, there's no chance that an appeal court is going to let this go through. So the, uh, the police, the police handbook from Minneapolis, they've changed it now, but at the time, listed a neck hold um, or neck restraint as an appropriate response to someone who is deemed to be an immediate threat so that's all they'll say that this was the appropriate department response it's used all over the country and it generally doesn't kill people the other issue they have is that during the actual video the officers talk about a condition called excited delirium yeah which is in itself somewhat of a controversial um diagnosis in that certain medical groups in america don't accept that it's real others do though enough that that won't be an issue and that is it sounds like they're trying to describe drug psychosis without anything that might suggest the person is on drugs but in that case a person with that is classed to be an immediate threat to himself and others an immediate extreme threat to himself and others so and George Floyd starts saying he can't breathe before he goes to the ground. So between all of that and the fact that the department said it was the thing, the appropriate thing, and that they're worried that he's an extreme threat to others, I can't see either um, either thing sticking to them. No, and as I said, the, the worst of it is that they would be potentially the correct decision. I mean, in, in the long term, if on the other hand... You've got a jury that decided because they wanted to express their moral outrage or because they felt pressure or whatever. They just didn't like this cop and they didn't like the look of it and they knew what was going on. They found these people guilty. In the long term, in the short term, that'll be bad news. In the long term, the short term, you know, not so much burning. Long term, I think it's bad news anyway. I think the whole, all of this is bad news. I don't think this, it's, it's not a fun, happy story, Gary. Well, on one hand, 
Yeah, people should be quite relieved that the videotape release does not show the police basically brutalising a black man for the crime of being black. In fact, they seem, they seem quite understanding with them. They're offering to help him with certain things. Now, they're also very much of the thing that you are getting in the police car now. Yeah. Uh, and he's saying he's claustrophobic and he, you know, if he gets in, he thinks he'll die. That is somewhat weakened by the fact he's in a car at the start of the video. Yeah. Little, although he's in the front seat and he's driving. He's about to drive, which when people were saying about the, whether or not he deserved to die over a $20 bill and the officer should have let him go. At the point the officers are dealing with him, he is obviously high and he's at the wheel of a car with other people. Yes. So they, they're not going to let you go. If you were walking, maybe. But in a car, absolutely not. Um, it is interesting because I, I've been looking at the reaction to it of people on various forums and various online things. Um, not just Twitter, but kind of across the spectrum of political views. And there's a bit of self-selection there because even if there are political, different political opinions, they're all online. So they're probably younger and oh, probably wealthier, better educated, more likely to be liberal in general. And the interesting thing is the amount of people who are saying that this changed their minds about where, the appropriateness of it. And yeah, they're all saying that he didn't deserve to die. But like, this is not what we were told this was. Really? Hmm. You're like um, a, a, a decent number of people. The majority of people. Really? Um, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that anybody changes their mind about anything, though. I mean, there are some things in the video that you can point at, and you can say maybe they shouldn't have done that. The one people are really pointing at is that they go for their guns quite... Uh, like, they'll take they, one of them takes their gun out of their holster quite, quite early. But what happens there is that George Floyd is in the car, and they can't see his hands. Now, George Floyd had... Um, he had had some um, previous activities and the nature of those were violent and involved guns um, so the police are they can't see his hands and they ask him would he put his hands on the wheel so that they could see them and he doesn't and they ask him again and he doesn't and they ask him again and he doesn't and it gets to about the fifth time they've asked him and one of them pulls a gun and then as soon as he puts his hand up he reholsters the gun. But you have in that case that George Floyd had, was charged with aggravated robbery with a deadly weapon. Now, if they knew who he was before they got there, or if he was named, he seems to have been a known figure to them, they would have known that. They would have known the guy they're dealing with had um, weapon charges. So, yeah, you probably would want to see his hand. Yeah, but at least, Gary, at least, even if they didn't know, didn't know him from a hole in the wall, it's a fact of life. I mean, Peter Moskos talks about this in Cop of the Street. He said, in the United States, it's, not, it's, it's, it's rather different to a traffic stop in Ireland. Every single, I mean, this isn't a traffic, well, a kind of traffic stop, but every single time a policeman approaches a motor a car in the United States, they're doing so in the knowledge that there's a pretty decent chance that, the, that in the glove box or in the well of that car, there's a, the guy has a gun. And that substantially changes the way you you police people, because if, if he has a gun, then there's also there's a possibility that gun might be discharged in your direction, you and you'll end up dead. And that will change the way you look at the world. If that was the experience of guards here, well, God, considering the way they treat people 
half the time at traffic stops, I can't imagine what it would be like. But I, you that you're you're talking about that period where they ask him, could you do that? Could you? I thought actually, I was quite surprised at how patient they were, because I've seen in other cases where you've had bad outcomes before and descriptions of where you they, they ask you to do something once maybe twice and then after that then it's not that they they, they produce the gun and ask you again but they they can sometimes simply just open bloody fire i mean they were i thought quite patient and quite reasonable in that oh yeah and i mean like the, he's saying he doesn't want to get into the car you know he's they're like i don't worry we'll roll down the windows you know we'll make sure you're comfortable they're, actually seem quite understanding about the entire thing rolling down the window is the big thing because actually if you are claustrophobic having the window rolled down does help yeah it's just um i mean the other thing is the knee on the neck which people seem to think of is uh, is absolutely uncalled for what i haven't seen and what i would like to see is an examination of the video to see can it be determined where the weight was centred? Because I don't know if, you, if you've ever seen anything like this, Michael. But if you, if someone on the ground, you put your knee above their neck. Yeah. If you lean your body forward onto the knee, the weight will all be distributed down onto their neck. Yes. Because you'll basically be using the knee to support yourself. Mm-hmm. If you lean your body back, the knee is in exactly the same position. But it's it's holding you down. It's not pushing down upon you. It's so you can't move further up. And in the video, you can see George Floyd is able to move his head. Yes, he can move his head up and down. Yeah, yeah. Which would indicate to me that the that the balance of weight is not on his neck. It's not on the far side of his neck. But it's just being used basically as something above him to hold him down, and that he's not being he's not effectively being asphyxiated with it. It, it, there was also the, the the fact that it was explained by one of the a trauma doctor. Now, if I get this, his opinion may also be disputed. But he he explained what you, when you're looking at pressure like this, you have to distinguish between static pressure and dropped pressure, right? He said, if somebody drops a knee onto your neck, well, that's that that can be catastrophic. But he said that if you look. That part of the neck, actually, a little bit like the thigh, can respond, can sustain very high, many, many pounds of pressure without it causing without causing a problem. And if, if you actually measure the pounds of pressure that you would have in a passive knee, knee position hold like that, it wouldn't represent, a, it wouldn't represent any, a real a threat or a problem. It would incapacitate you. It would mean you, you you're you're very much a limited movement. Although, as you said, in the in the videos we saw, he actually seems to be able to raise his head and move it back, which suggests that he wasn't uh, restricted even in, even to that extent. Listen, we're not we're not trauma trauma surgeons or experts in this kind of thing. And I'm sure that when the actual trial gets going, we will hear. Plenty of people discussing this in great and expert detail. Uh, is it too late, however, for the the DA to back down, or can he can he pursue? I mean, can he pursue two targets? Can he go for 
Well, he, he has. He's gone for he's gone for manslaughter, and he's gone from murder three, possibly murder two as well. And then the other officers, because there's a number of them up on this, are on um, up for aiding and abetting in the murder and manslaughter. But it's it's very difficult to see how he gets any of them. I mean, we the Minneapolis Police Department trained its people to use that restraint as a safe restraint where someone was a threat to themselves and others. On the video, they're talking about a condition which would class him immediately as a threat to himself and others. He is very obviously high. He's erratic. He is... I mean, he repeatedly lies to the officers, which is not a crime. Well, maybe, but it's not a crime that ends in death, usually. But we'll be shown just to say that he was untrustworthy. He's complaining the handcuffs are too tight. He starts saying he can't breathe before... Uh, officer Chauvin, who's the officer who's charged with his murder, is on top of him in any way, or he's being restrained, and he has a history of heart problems. I, I just, and, I don't think the DA can get anything on this. And the, be... Also, from the autopsy, the blood cock, the blood analysis, blood cock, a cocktail shows that what was going on inside his system was, to an extent, it's a bit of a surprise the man was walking upright anyway. Oh yeah, yeah. So I mean. Yeah, with the right jury, they might get it. But there's absolutely no chance of it getting through an appeal court. But politically, there's going to be a lot of pressure on them, on them to get a conviction on this because they are probably correct that if the worst case for them is probably that they get off based on the fact that the Minnesota Police Department had trained people on those neck restraints because then it will be basically saying, yes, he did do this, but... But structurally, if he was trained and instructed to do it, you couldn't argue. I mean, initially, the sense was you could argue that while there wasn't intent, he had behaved recklessly by using this restraint. However, if it comes out then that in fact from the, the Minneapolis police training, was that this what this was a suitable and safe restraint? Then you can't even, you can't even claim that he was reckless. He was just following correct procedure, and whether or not the procedure is indeed correct or not isn't the question. But you can't get him for recklessness, so you couldn't even get him for manslaughter on that basis. You can't, and it's, it is listed in the Minneapolis police training documents, and some of them have been uh, logged online now because of various legal issues with this case did they explicitly say it can be used when someone is resisting arrest and you can see from the video that floyd is resisting arrest i mean he throws himself out of a car yeah <laughs> um with vigor yeah so what, what it actually says in their um in their the document is is neck restraints compression of, of one or both sides of a person's neck with an arm or leg without applying direct pressure to the trachea or airway and it is a non-deadly force option so yeah he was trained in this it says it's the appropriate thing so you won't get him on manslaughter either because he just say it was what i was trained to do and i was told it was safe uh, his ex floyd mr floyd's ex as it says in the daily mail sobs as the officers pull him out of the car and handcuff him his ex suggests he was undergoing mental problems and was afraid of the police it's very hard for the police to deal with that though isn't it it is. I mean, one people have been saying that they should have that he had, you know, a mental health issue, and the police shouldn't have been dealing with him. But you can see on the video that they have already called 
um, emer- uh, EMS emergency medical services. On a more general point, this is one of the, this is a problem in the United States. If you talk to anybody about the issue of police killings, and there are many, far too many, rather brutal police killings in the United States. Uh, Daniel Shaver is the one I've mentioned before, but because it seems to me to be absolutely horrendous, it's an execution rather than a, it, anything else. It's is that uh, again and again in the United States when there is a problem on the streets with somebody who is mentally ill, the first responders are police, and they're the ones that have to deal with it. And police have cert- have are trained to deal with things in a certain way rather than they're not mental health professionals. I'm sure a lot of them do very well. Those people of my generation remember Fourth Dan Paul Newman and Fourth Apache the Bronx having the famous scenes from cinema at the time of the, of the, of the time dealing with somebody who was mentally ill. And that was that is and was part of the problem part of the competence of police, but it's not really part of their competence and it ends up far too often with somebody uh, dead because of it and that this may be one of those I, I'm a little bit less I think this is a little less clear cut he may have had mental health problems he certainly was having psychopharmaceutical problems on the day that this happened well, that's the issue that you're going to have even if you say it's a mental health issue that toxicology report is going to come back and then it becomes I mean, also the presence of methamphetamines in his system is going to be a real problem. The only grounds I could see that they might even get the neck restraint thing is that on the training documents of the Minneapolis uh, Police Department, it says that they are only to be used against subjects if lower force options have failed or will likely fail or are too dangerous to attempt. But I don't think I don't think they're going to have a problem with that because, again, they bring up excited delirium in the video i mean for the i can see why the defense have spent weeks trying to get this thing released because there's enough mentions of particular things in it that it's just it's not it's not feasible now the daily mail has at least the shorter video and maybe the longer video online you can see the shorter one on the gripped website i put up an article on it yesterday um I nearly didn't because I assumed everyone else would report it and there's no point me reporting it if everyone else has. And they didn't. They haven't. None of them. No. No. Well, I suppose maybe they were all a bit upset, Gary. It was a very upsetting day yesterday for journalists with the news that the pubs will not be reopening. Mm. Ever. Ever, ever, ever again. The pubs are finished, gone. Well, actually, I'd say if you had a pub, and in particularly in down the country, there's it's well, well. Do you know what? It may well, it may well be never. I I can't imagine that there won't be significant numbers of of pubs that simply won't open, and that possibly that the Republicans that were on the we're on the point of will I open? Will I will I try and keep going? And this announcement will have just made the decision for them because no guarantees that pubs will reopen this year. Taoiseach wards, you know, this year there's not many pubs 
there are not many businesses, Gary, that can sustain at this stage. How long are they closed? Since March? No, we're, we're reaching a point where businesses will just not open again, uh, very clearly. And it would be a little, a little less aggravating if it seemed to make a little bit more sense. Like the, the response to pubs and restaurants, if they need to be closed, they need to be closed. But I'd like to see a bit more of a clear argument for why particular ones need to be closed and why particular ones need to be open. Like, did you see that they're saying that restaurants now must close at 11? Yes. Why? Part of what restaurants have been doing is because they can get less people in, they've been opening later. Or they've been trying to get more bookings in because you can basically just try and, and get that to work. You can get the same people you would have got in normally just with far less tables yeah. and over a far wider uh, length of time. And if you're cleaning appropriately between them, I don't know what the problem would be. But now apparently that's not a runner. The food thing to this day still makes... I can see where they did it, but it's an absolutely arbitrary situation and one that doesn't seem necessary. There are other metrics you could have chosen that would have allowed... Um, that would have allowed bars to open without food. And if you don't think bars should be opening at all, well, then, then don't, don't open them, them and, no. and say, oh, you need to get nine euro <clears throat> worth of food because that's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, we have to make a decision. That, that said, are, are we going to attempt some kind of normality, some kind of a return to normality? Or are we going to eschew that and say that we're going to basically live at the level much like we were previously, until we have a vaccine. No, of course, that's not actually true, because lots of other stuff will go back. It's just that it seems the pub has become this symbol of, I don't know, what is it license? Of, is it misbehavior or lack of responsibility that people will go to pubs and they will drink and they will become irresponsible and that will spontaneously generate within the environs of that pub the virus we have already been told pretty well that part of the management of the next phase is that there won't be a second what we call it we're they're, they're hoping anyway and some of the experts are seem to be confidently predicting there will not be a second wave but rather there are going to be localized waves which will be responded to locally now if that's going to be the principle and that's the principle that's operating at an international level that rather than closing down the country they're closing down cities they're closing down towns even just parts of towns in response to local outbreaks why can't we just then look at very simply look at, at a regional reopening if you have a problem with dame lane and temple bar because the density is too big and there are too many people and you you just can't have that and it will it, it will create a what's the phrase gary they use for a super super, super spreader a super spreader that's it okay if that's your position but that, in a village of 300 people with one pub which never has more than six people in it at the best of times anyway your super spreader opportunities also in a region which has had no reported case for four weeks that seems to be a reason it seems to be reasonable to say in, in that area in that reason those pubs can open up again 
we are moving towards it feels like we're, we're moving towards being held hostage to a to a standard of safety that isn't is going to destroy us it's definitely going to destroy a lot of businesses and it is it is a decision but here's the thing michael you see this you see this a lot if there is a wrong decision that is the accepted way of doing things most people will do it because then when it inevitably fails it's not your fault because it is the commonly expected accepted way of doing things whereas if you were to go for something else that may actually work but would break with that if it fails and any new option is likely to fail well then that's your fault yeah and we know for we've we talked about this since the beginning that when you're dealing with a, a, a pandemic or a, a healthy a health a public health uh, problem there is a real incentive to be excessively careful to overestimate the threat because if you get it wrong it's much more difficult to assess the the effect that that has it's it's, it's more theoretically it's, it's it's more however if you underestimate the threat you get it wrong well the people say a thousand people died because of you you killed a thousand people with your wild and reckless behavior so p- policymakers are heavily incentivized to be overly careful now we're going we're talking about the also the pubs are it's just easy isn't it the pubs won't pubs aren't going to open once upon a time the pub was a extremely powerful lobby group the pub and the farmer represent the two most powerful lobby groups in the country well those days are obviously long gone but they're speculating that pubs won't be able to, but but we are we're being told here on the 5th of august that schools will reopen on the 30th confidently and i see far less reason to be sanguine about opening schools than to be than talking about opening country pubs there are 1800 1800 students in my local secondary school, one of my local secondary schools 200 odd teachers uh, narrow corridors building work will have we're told money will be made available for building work and for extending all this none of that has started none of the none of the work that is necessary has been identified i don't see how any if they're going to do these necessary things to create the necessary space and create the proper safety levels that how are they, they are they going to have to tender for them if they're not going to tender for them are they going to be protected post factum if there's a suspicion that something went wrong? I can't see that these schools, but there is a huge pressure, huge pressure to get the schools up by the 30th because simply where else are you going to send your kids? I mean, these are, this is a, as much as anything, this is a national babysitting emergency. I don't, Jerry, were you, Jerry, there were a couple of weeks where all we heard about was Sweden. Yes. Where it was when Sweden's COVID-19 debt rate was going, was spiking quite high. And there were many comments, and Sweden didn't go into full lockdown. Now, they didn't. They weren't absolutely laissez-faire about this. They did put in place quite stringent measures. But they never went into full lockdown. No. And for a while, their debt toll was higher. And we were hearing about Sweden constantly. And now we're not hearing about Sweden, which made me wonder what their debt toll had become. Well, because their debt toll is now... if I. I am 
sadly, is lower than the UK, is lower than Spain, is lower than Italy, is lower than Belgium's. It is. And one thing that's very interesting is their, um, what's called the case fatality ratio, which is basically, you know, if you, how likely are you to die if you get COVID-19? And it's half what it is in a lot of other European countries, which would seem to indicate that a lot of people who are young are picking it up. Well, this is not just happening in Sweden. This has been happening in other places where more recently the the, the demographics... This is happening in Ireland too, Gary, actually, if you look at the numbers. Look at the age of the more, rec- more, more recently infected cases. We're looking at a younger population being infected than, ha- than has been the case previously. That's also true in the United States, which is one of the reasons why you've got a you've had a massive expansion in some places of infect of cases of infection but much lower rates of fatality i mean the interesting thing here is that sweden have been going for effectively a um a herd immunity strategy well they were i think i think they've now accepted that that's the way this virus works as it turns out that's not going to really that does i mean that does seem to be a thing but it's interesting if what you would expect in that strategy is a spike in deaths at the beginning and that, that you would then level off while other places will start lower, but will have it will be around longer and it will occasionally spike up dramatically as you get outbreaks. Yeah. In, according to Newsweek, new infections per 100,000 people in Sweden in the past 14 days have gone down 46%. In the same time, Spain, France, Germany, Belgium and the Netherlands have each reported a spike between 58 and 206% in new cases reported over that same now, time. Uh, just, you know, for the sake of the numbers, th- those percentages are going to be based, on, obviously, off the previous baseline. So if you had a very, very low base, uh, a weekly number of, of new cases, and then you, you move into... A slightly higher number; it doesn't have to be a massive number. Then you, the percentage increase will be very significant. But yes, it is true that there are there are still all sorts of things, Gary. And it's not; it's a new virus. We, we don't really understand about the way this was working. It's it just it does peculiar things. In some places, it looks like it reaches a certain point and it starts to weaken. There are suggestions that within populations you actually uh, have large reservoirs of immunity, of immune populations. That Not that they've had this particular coronavirus before, or obviously certainly been vaccinated against it, but for whatever reasons, they have basically an immunity. Some sites say 50 to 60% of certain populations. That there may be higher levels that different populations maybe have genetic predispositions or their diet leads them to have greater levels of protection and that there may be two different, three different variations of the virus going around and those mutations are have, have different levels of fatality and different levels of contagion. I mean, it could also be that Sweden demonstrates that most of the advantages that we saw in the measures was actually found through social distancing and the lockdown itself was actually a relatively little benefit. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think that I think if you if you talk to people in the business and, and they're going to talk to you honestly, they say that's yes, that that's pretty well established. But Gary, was that not the, what we were saying 
four months ago. I, I remember, I think, saying to you that my suspicion at that state, even for, for whatever, does that the vast majority of the benefit would be gained from the basic, the basic responses of social distancing. And whatever benefit you get from the last, the, 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 those extreme lockdown measures would actually give you very little difference at all. And remember, the other thing is, and Sam Bowman has talked about this and, I, uh, uh, and, and other economists, while the Swedish government didn't impose lockdown, the Swedish, the, 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 the virus imposes changes in behavior far more effectively and earlier than a lot of the government behaviors do. People react to it. And even if they're not being told legally that they must do or not do X or Y. We know, for example, that before anything was done, usage of public transport, like around Stockholm, was down to 30% of what it normally would have been. Bars, restaurants, all showed collapses. The Swedish economy is going to contract just as much as pretty well any other country in Europe. I mean, the idea that they escaped lockdown, therefore they escaped the economic harm, which was touted a lot at the beginning, is just simply not true. People modify their behaviour because people didn't want to catch COVID. Mm. I was thinking there the other day, um, just something that popped into my mind. And it was, it was just a reminder that no one ever, uh, from any medical establishment that I can think of, ever apologised for lying to people about masks. I think I mentioned it already, uh, the statistic, but um, I don't know if we were talking about it, that only two countries introduced mandatory mask wearing in situations in March. March seems like a long time ago now. And that was Slovakia and Czechia. Slovakia has the lowest rates of fatalities in, in all of Europe at five, as opposed to 354 per million. And Czechia is at 33. Again, an incredibly low, low number. I know correlation is not causation, but I'm just throwing that number out there, Gary. And <laughs> are we taking another trip around? The, are we going to take another trip of we were right, we were right? Well, I know many listeners disagree with us on masks, but I would also point out that we were saying that masks were a reasonable thing way before the World Health Organization, and that was based on a cursory reading of um, the scientific evidence for them. And then all those people who said that not only didn't did they not work, but that they were actively harmful, turned around, pivoted totally. Yeah, yeah. And just said, actually, you should all be wearing masks. But at no point did anyone in public health that I can remember ever apologise, even though at the time it was obvious they were lying. And we figured they were lying because they thought that if the public started buying up masks, then that would leave a shortage of masks for healthcare workers. But they were obviously lying. And then they said, oh, there's new evidence. And we had been following the evidence. And there had been some stuff released uh, over the, the beginning of COVID-19. But by the time they changed their mind, there was no new evidence. Yeah, but and they never specified what that evidence was. They just said, "Oh, it was new evidence." There was but some. They were, they're obviously lying to people. It was. I, it, I, if I could be kinder to them, I'd say that maybe some of them were lying. But a, a problem also was something which we, both of us, I think, adverted to when we went through the literature was that the difference in attitude to risk and reward between engineers and people 
in the medical field. They just seem to think of these things in very different ways. So if you go to an engineer, say on the basis of like the, the Yale study, and you say to them, we think that we can decrease risks by 50%. The engineer thinks that's fantastic. You should do this immediately. Let, as long as the costs obviously are prohibitive, that's really good news. You say this to a, a medical type and they go, eh, 50%, it's only 50%. We really want to be looking at somewhere between 95, 97%. Yeah, that was, a, that was, I think, the most bizarre part of it. When you would read the difference between doctors and engineers. And this just sort of, ah, what, what's a 50% reduction? Whereas an engineer would go, but the, it's, the per unit uh, cost to do this is basically nothing. Why wouldn't we do this? And the outcomes are... Hmm. In, tremendous it's what i find am, amusing and annoying is that when we were doing the mask stuff and crit criticizing the who position which was the position then adopted by our own chief medical officer and the government here because they were relying on who advice and they said so explicitly they said it and actually there was a rather do you remember they had a rather odd phrase WHO's advice is that the evidence does not support the use of wearing, does not support the wearing of masks. Right, was a strange formulation, but and then the reminder that in fact it could uh, they could increase infections because people would have a false sense of security. Yes, yes, and that, or, that it would... oh, we couldn't oh, remember. Do you remember that moment <laughs> in time, Michael? <laughs> Where it was, uh, we can't tell the people to wear masks because they won't wear them properly. And yeah, yeah. Spread the, that was a good one. That, that, was, a, that was a golden moment. And they actually would increase the chance of infection because people would have it and they would handle the masks. Mm -hmm. such a, that would actually give, they would give the things. Themselves. Two people would meet and they'd take off their masks and they would rub them on each other. Yes. And I think there was a great, the grave sense that people might wear masks. But nothing else and just go around the place naked except for their masks and rub up against each other in the street and therefore uh, that, they obviously had to move away from the whole mask but the, but uh, yeah no one i was obviously a lie from very senior <laughs> public health officials and not just here in nearly every western country and in none of those countries have i seen anyone afterwards say well sorry we lied to you but and that, i can see why they wouldn't do that but I also think that most people, anyone who looks back at what they were told then and now is going to be able to go, well, wasn't that obvious horseshit when you said it? But the problem is now the same people, or at least people who look very like the same people who are saying about masks being of very dubious value, are now basically advocating and mandating Compulsory use of masks all over yeah. the gaff. Yeah, when when no. there's an actual when it's at its most severe risk, then masks are uh, filthy things which will spread COVID nineteen, and uh, you can't be trusted to wear them correctly anyway. So don't. And then when we actually seem to beat effectively the first wave, then well we need to mandate by law that everyone must wear these things. Um, it's very, I, I find it really interesting how that opinion changed. Now, there are places, certain places, which were always sensible locus loci for mask wearing. 
buses, trams, trains, closed spaces with lots with with people. people sure, just just look at the Asian countries that have a culture of wearing masks and see where they do it. No. I do it because I think it's maybe part of the psychological thing of getting used to it and fine. It's, it doesn't, it's not a big cost. The number of people who have been infected or are, are have infected in supermarkets, as to my knowledge, the reported cases so far are nil. I mean, the, to be honest, the major flashpoints seem to be nursing homes, meatpacking facilities, possibly some of the direct provision centres. And outside of that? Outside of that, if if they were open, we know from the Korean experience, nightclubs, uh, anywhere where you've got people just genuinely close up together, or any, also singing, <laughs> anywhere you've got a lot of people singing is a bad thing. Singing is a, is a really dangerous kind of thing to do with this. But I see people walking up and down the street, and they're wearing masks. And you think, well, you know, okay, fine. Maybe just you're happy. My personal favourite is watching horse racing. And you've got jockeys at the backs of horses running, travelling, going at 45 miles an hour outdoors. And they're wearing masks. I thought you were going to tell me the horses were wearing masks. Well, that could... that the Horses are worth more than the jockeys So in many cases. So possibly the... If there was evidence of human equine transmission, that might happen. But Gary, I don't know what you'd have to do to catch, to be able to get the virus at 45 miles an hour on the back of horse outdoors. I mean, that would be, that would be beyond unlucky. There is, there is a little bit of a, a galling thing here of someone obviously lying to you and then later saying, well, now you have to do this. And just... In most, in most circumstances, I mean, a lot of this just comes down to how much you trust the people overseeing public health. So you, you would think they would try not to lie to you. And if they did lie to you, that they would admit and perhaps try and explain why they had lied to you in, you know, an effort to salvage the credibility that shouldn't have been lost in the first place. But I'm not sure just a brazen refusal to admit that you ever had a different opinion uh, and this sort of, oh, well, the evidence changed. And no one asked or got an answer to the question, what evidence? What evidence? <laughs> what, what what study came out that made you think, oh, this has changed now? I remember... Spe- what particular thing? The, I remember specifically the week that the evidence changed. I do too. Because we, we had a conversation about it and we both went off and rooted around everywhere we could to find a link or a chain or a reference to where this new evidence was and there was none i think at that point you and i on the podcast was i think nearly on a weekly basis talking about different research on masks yeah i know i got a number of annoyed emails over that period from people who either thought we were wrong about masks which is perfectly fair absolutely Um, and i did read even if i didn't respond to your email i did read a lot of the stuff you sent on or people who just wish we'd stop talking about bloody masks (laughs) enough with the masks (laughs) and yeah there was there's nothing it's just many countries at the same time said oh the evidence has changed and the only evidence i could find that had changed had was that many countries now thought different things (laughs) yeah (laughs) but not why they thought those different things 
And this, I mean, this, this entire thing has seen a wonderful politicization of public health. It's been absolutely fantastic to see. Well, from a news perspective, from a you know, safeguarding public health so that we don't all die horribly. Not great. It's right up there with that letter from America for the BLM protests. Do you remember the one that was signed by hundreds of uh, of uh, public health professionals? Oh, yeah. About the, yeah, how yeah, the, yeah, the BLM yeah. protests should go ahead and we're not a risk for increasing COVID. And yeah. Like, that's the time when people just went, you know, my credibility, I'd like to take that behind a barn and shoot it in the back of the head. Yeah, all right. Let's introduce it to a very high-powered shredder. That that was one of the great moments when 1,200, 1,300 public health officials said, because, of course, Gary, it was done on the basis that racism is a public health crisis. I mean, when we go back over this and we do the comedy highlights of the COVID-19 crisis... That's going to be well up. That might even be number one, but we'll see. And we had a we had our own version of it, Gary. Here, we did. Although I think in in this case, the politicians had the good sense to just not say anything. It was just... a deafening silence. The same people who had been given out about maybe two dozen people standing in front of a some court somewhere and shouting and screaming, complete silence when six thousand people. Came together in the middle of Dublin. Now, the public were substantially less silent about that. Well, yes. The public, the public seemed to take, uh, seemed to anger them in some way, Michael. Almost like making people miss their funerals of their loved ones and just totally disrupting their lives. And then allowing people to protest because they felt bad about someone in America. Well, now, ah. when you say that, you're, you remind me of something, but we're really getting into golden oldies here. But if we're talking f- for that future day when we are in a position to look behind us and say, well, what, what changed and what didn't, I, I wonder, will one of the things that will turn out to have been rather an important thing was the, uh, the, Bel- the Bel- was it Belfast? Yes, the Belfast funeral of that prominent Republican that Mary Lou and Michelle O'Neill turned up to. I have, I can't remember the last time something happened where so many people spontaneously in conversation brought something up and were really, really pissed by something. That the attitude, when one of them said, I can't, was it Mary Lou? I will never apologize for attending the funeral of a friend of mine. When there were people who couldn't attend the funerals of close family members because of restrictions all over the country. When on the same day, there were eight or nine crematorium uh, funerals that were were not allowed into the crematorium, and his was when he went to the graveyard, even though he wasn't being buried there. Yeah, I I did I did see there was some public anger about. It. I didn't. I didn't find that particularly surprising. I didn't find it something I was terribly angry about. Because well, surprising is that depends on your previous your understanding. Well, no, of... I, I I had expected that. I had expected, based on what I had seen in other countries, that at the slightest hint of political expediency, any Irish political party or politician would engage in that sort of behaviour. Like someone died. Who was let's have a big funeral? So the fact that it was Sinn Fein, I think, was just an unlucky roll of the dice. No, I disagree. I disagree with you. I think that had that been Finnefall or Finnegale or Labour, they would have made a huge deal out about not going. There would have been 
a whole thing made about they would have had relays and cameras and distancing and it would have been an opportunity to be incredibly virtuous and that would have been the message that they would have chosen to send. I think the case of Sinn Féin, what people said to me, and with tons of surprise, was well, it was almost like they had to go. It's it's like they're, it's not a normal political party. And I go, well, that's certainly one take on it. I am, that hadn't occurred to me. But yeah, well, maybe you're right. It's not like that's been said hundreds of thousands of times about. Yeah. That's it's a whole new novel insight. I'd never thought of it like that. I don't know. I I I I can't quite sum up the contempt for Sinn Fein that seems to be endemic to Irish political discourse. I don't agree with. I would imagine any policy Sinn Fein has, but I've just never been like the sheer contempt a lot of people have from them in what we consider the establishment or in media. I've just never, I've just never been able to sum that up. I don't know, am I missing out on something? You need to probably do a weekend course somewhere and we'll, we can get you sent off and set, sorted out and settled up. I mean, I don't agree with them, so I, generally, I don't like them on that basis, but contempt for them yeah, never seemed never seemed to be a point. Also, they are a political party, whatever their history. And this whole thing of, well, they're not a normal uh, political party and you know we can't go into government with them. Well, the entire point of the of a lot of the peace talks in the north was the normalization of certain people and the idea that they could be involved in political discourse so i find it a little bit yeah but there are people who and we discovered that in the last couple of days in the context of the death of john hume there are quite a few people and perfectly reasonable people who think that that was exactly the problem with the peace process that it did normalize certain people that it did bring them into within the bounds and that should never have happened. If a politician wants to say that, well, then I can absolutely understand them not wanting to deal with Sinn Féin. But if a politician wants to get on the high horse about the peace process and how great everything was and how there were no troubles with it at all and then refuse to deal with Sinn Féin, well, then at the very best, you're a hypocrite. Yeah, and as we all know, hypocrisy is the worst. Absolutely, it's, it's the worst thing. <laughs> it is the worst so thing. I think if we close about, I will include a direct link to both of the Daily Mail uh, articles on George Floyd in the bottom of this podcast. Um, there's actually one point I wanted to make because occasionally I will get emails from people and they will ask why we talk about American news so much. Um, well, firstly, we actually have a weirdly sizable American listenership. I don't know why, because while we do talk about American news a significant amount of time, we also talk about local Irish news that I wouldn't have thought would be of any interest to Americans. But there you go. And it's... Um, and it's, it's this. I think what the BLM protests, or the reason I, I like to talk about particularly the George Floyd thing and the BLM stuff and the culture stuff so much is because I think what we saw with the George Floyd protests, the BLM protests, is that the cultural contagion from America, however, in many aspects, America has weakened considerably, but their ability to influence the culture of other speaking lang uh, countries is still nearly total. I mean, we saw the BLM protests moving over with no change in the discourse to make it fit into the countries. No change so, in context of vocabulary. It is, and the United States is a, is a, is a cultural superpower, especially in Anglo, in the Anglophone countries. Actually, I mean, we saw, we saw people in Britain in front of unarmed police saying, hands up, don't you? In Ireland, 
people legitimately, the Irish Times legitimately took the American line that uh, keeping a statue of something up is to say that you want your future to represent that. As if Ireland is not a country that when we got independence from England and from Britain, had that discussion and decided in many cases to leave the statues up. We've already had the discussion about whether statues should go up or uh, we, go down. And we, we made, I think, the absolutely correct decision not to be that bothered about it, to say that's our past. And you the thing about the past, and that's the difference in attitude, Gary, right here. There was a recognition, you know what, that's the past, you can't change the past. The progressive, there's a weird notion in the ex, the extreme progressives today that you can change the past. You can somehow, by actions today, you can remediate the, what happened in the past. You can, in some weird moral sense, you can change the past. And that's what they're doing. So there is, there was a, um, a Romanian philosopher who once said that... Uh, it's not a country, but a language that is our homeland. I've been thinking about that more recently, and uh, I think maybe the French are right in this. The French regard for their language and the refusal to uh, let English in totally is incredible. They're really dedicated to keeping it out, but I think they may... The older I get, the more, and the more I see things change this way, the more I think they are right, and that it is largely just a product of English... The fact that English is our dominant language and America is the most powerful of the English country, so everything just spreads to it. Well, it means that it's, I think paradoxically, it's because it's things are easy. We don't actually have to have, we don't have to produce any cultural content of our own because we're sitting here between the, the United Kingdom on one side and the United States on the other side. Now, we're actually lucky that we're as close as we are to the UK, because whatever you say about, whatever you like to say about the UK, they actually make pretty, ex a lot historically, excellent television and some very fine cinema and other stuff, and also music. The United States, culturally, when it's, you're talking about Hollywood, pop music, lots of other stuff. So we don't have to do much. We don't have to create stuff. We can do what we do, which is basically a little bit local journalism. But if you're Romanian, you have to make it yourself or else you import it and you dub it. But it does, it, it, it's never quite the same. It's never quite the same. We are in this community of a language which goes around the globe, because it goes over to Australia, New Zealand, of course, is South Africa. And we, it creates this, it's this stream that goes around and we are part of it and it's great. And it means lots of economic advantages, cultural advantages, but there's problems to it too. I said to, one of the things I said to Glenn Larry, the first thing I said, in the last week, as examples of what you're talking about, cultural colonialism in the United States, there was an article on the RTE website talking about what we could learn, we could learn from the defund the police in the United States, which ended up advocating for a, a justice system where there was no punishment. We had the statues being taken down in front of the, the, the Shelburne and somebody talking about getting rid of 
To Kill a Mockingbird and Steinbeck's uh, Mice of Men because of the use of racial language. That's absolutely straight from the United States. Mm. Straight in. No change in context, nothing. Straight in. If we do talk about the States, it's, you know, may, maybe we're Cassandra's. We're saying, listen, it didn't work there. There's no reason to suspect it's going to work here. Yeah, but the great thing about being a Cassandra is at least afterwards you can say, well, I told you so. I told you so. I told you so. I told you so. Yes. You never get to do it during it, but there is a certain joy, and if it's going to happen, at least you can be one of the people who told people it was going to happen. I mean, that's the famous quote, isn't it? Um, what is it? Those who don't study people, history are doomed to repeat it, while those who studied history are doomed to watch as others repeat it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, of course, and we can feel all good and justified. Well, I mean, if it's, going, if it's going to happen, I would rather be able to say, well, you didn't have to do that. That was a silly thing you did, wasn't it? <laughs> the silly, silly thing you As did. you know, we're, we're beating each other to death for the last scrap of cotton. <laughs> yeah, anyway, um, we will be back on Friday. Is it, are we back on Friday, Gary? Friday, yes. Um, by which time I'm sure that the African heat that is now inhabiting the southern part of the continent will have pushed up here and we will be baking in glorious sunshine and it'll feel like we don't have to go away on holidays at all to places like Malta or San Marino with their filthy COVID unlike here. So I don't know. I don't feel comfortable about that like, sentence they had, but African and filthy in it, Michael. In fairness, Gary, you're the one that drew that line. I, not you me. said it. I just got rid of some of the context around it. <laughs> you just got rid of I like yeah. <laughs> got rid of some of the context around it in much the same way as you you went into the forest and knocked down all the trees, which was basically and said, "Oh look." I, f I found this I found this land. I just knocked the context away I was around it. Anyway, we will be back on Friday until then. Stay safe and have a good week. Bye bye. All the best. <laughs>